There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, I'm Cathy Sheridan. In today's podcast, we're bringing you part two of our True Blood series, where we go deep into the topic of periods, asking why it is we find them so damn hard to talk about. In her book, Period, It's About Bloody Time, BBC broadcaster Emma Barnett offers an exhaustive compendium of the hundreds of euphemistic ways we've come up with to describe periods rather than just calling them what they are, which is periods. But among the euphemisms are sinner's juice, got my Mary, special friend, auntie's visiting from Argentina, code rouge, up on bricks, shark week, on your redder, granny pants week, Liverpool playing at home, and the cardinal has his hat on. Some of them are very new to me. Barnett is best known for her reputation as a political interviewer, dubbed a Rottweiler by The Times and cited by Jeremy Paxman as his favourite political interrogator. So it was a bit of a surprise when she turned her attention to periods for her latest book. It is, as you'd expect, a great read and I was delighted to get to speak to her about it recently. Please begin with the story of Gillian Walsh, Emma. Very happily. Um, So one of the things about periods or anything remaining taboo is... You can't talk about them, and that means by definition you can't cry about them, but you also can't laugh about them. And one of the big things I found writing the book and talking to lots of different women is they have some of the most hilarious stories connected to their period. And one of them I came across actually through a different podcast, and I got in touch with the person who told the original story. She's called Gillian. She's from America, and she was uh, part of an Amdram theatre group. She got on very well with one of her colleagues, Jeffrey, and they're at the party at the last night of the show. They get together. They go back to his place. She's quite nervous because she's on her period and she tells him this and he doesn't mind at all. So they go ahead and they have sex. And at the end of sex, Jeffrey gets up to take a shower, turns on the light, goes back into the ensuite, I presume, the bathroom right next door to where they had just had sex. And as she puts it, it looks like a crime scene. There's a bloodied handprint on the wall. There's just blood everywhere. And she is horrified. So she obviously does the most logical thing in the world. She steals all of his linen, shoves it into her rucksack, doesn't say goodbye to poor Jeffrey, who's just <laughs> taking a shower, and goes off on the New York subway to go back to her place, mortified. Except it's not that long after 9-11. And police are conducting spot checks on their underground. And they ask her to show the contents of her rucksack. And she genuinely has more than a moment where she thinks, I'm going to say no. And obviously, that's not going to go well for her. I.e., she's picking between menstrual shame and jail, which is (laughs) the most extreme example of the taboo around periods and sex coming together. 
She does, in fact, show what's inside her bag. The cop understandably thinks there's been a homicide. And she then says, I can take you to where it happened. And that is how they end up back at Jeffrey's place with a cop. Jeffrey opens the door like the cool period hero he is and says... (laughs) We just had menstrual sex. We had sex with her on her period. He can say it. She cannot. Go figure. In a sense, Emma, I felt that story summed up the whole premise of your book. The sheer shame and taboo attaching to it. Now, I know 9-11 is quite some time ago. But nonetheless, oddly enough, we haven't moved on all that much, have we? No. And I actually found other women because I did a load of anonymous interviews as well do seem to become linen thieves when on their period. And I had found another woman who stole a bedsheet from a friend where she'd stayed over and she just leaked and she was very embarrassed by it. A woman in America leaked on her seat working in a 911 call centre. She lost her job. Um, the point is, that was obviously not okay in any way, but I think that people haven't found their voice. Women haven't found their voice about their periods and often themselves feel deep shame or, or deep embarrassment about their period, or they are used to, as they've been trained in society, to spare the blushes of men. Now, Emma, very importantly, you're the first woman, as you say, to look down the barrel of a TV lens on a serious current affairs programme and say, I'm menstruating right now. Yeah, that, that happened. Uh, I didn't realise it was quite a big deal, but I should have started realising on this programme I was doing on Sky News that it was when all the cameramen got a bit twitchy and my co-presenters were uh, looking like they had puked in their mouths and swallowed it, as I said the simple sentence, I'm menstruating right now and it really hurts. And the reason I was talking about menstruation was because a British company had become the first to offer menstrual leave to its staff. And actually, I don't agree with that and I wanted to have a debate about it, but I was in a lot of pain. I was on my period. I thought, use what you've got. All life is material. Why not say it? And it was a reaction afterwards that that really spurred the beginning thoughts of around doing a book because women and men, but mainly women, were coming up to me on the street. Now, that doesn't happen very often. Often it's on social media, which did also happen, and wanting to tell me their stories. And The Sun headlined the the, 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 the ensuing uh, fallout as Woman Starts Furious Row. Yes, because I then went on uh, onto the BBC breakfast sofa I think my period had finished by that point, so I couldn't use the line again. <laughs> and I, I, we'd done a study on my radio show, my, my Five Live show, which had shown that more women would rather say to their boss that they had diarrhoea if they were feeling peaky than their period. Now, a period is something natural. Diarrhoea is an illness or certainly a distortion of your bowel at some point. And extremely and, messy. And, and extremely messy. And, you know, apparently poo is less taboo, it seems, than periods. So I wanted to talk about Uh, that, menstrual leave, all of that. And yeah, the Sun newspaper had this kind of very, I would say, ironically, because of the word that's usually used to do with women and hormones and periods, hysterical response. (laughs) and Not in the good sense. So after that, that that Emma sort of kind of broke a dam, if you like. Um, Have you noticed since then that that people have begun to talk about it? I mean, did that achieve something important? Well, I'm biased because I think they talk to talk a lot about it, but they now talk to a woman who's written a book about periods quite a lot, you could argue. Um, yeah. I think we've had a bit of change, uh, and I, I'm definitely nowhere near going to take credit for it in the sense of I really hope the book gives people a toolkit 
to feel confident and feel like it's perfectly natural for periods to be unremarkable enough for you to be able to talk about them like you would about a migraine or whatever else. But there have been campaigners, specifically younger women, who really got behind the tampon tax uh, debate and tried to make sure women weren't paying VAT on tampons, which were deemed luxuries under the European Union, bizarrely. There were also uh, a, a young schoolgirl I spoke to, Amika George, who was campaigning for free period products to go into schools. She's been successful. Uh, the former chancellor, remember him, Philip Hammond, said that as of next September, into primary schools and um, senior schools, there will be high schools free products for those schoolgirls. So I think there's been a really good wave of campaigners trying to deal with some of the issues that have been overlooked because it's, oh, it's dirty, it's squeamish, it's mm. periods. Um, but we're not there yet. I mean, I think that the day we're there is the day you don't put your tampon in a bag, in a bag, to go to the toilet perhaps at work. Or the day where there is when you don't live your life in pain, not asking enough questions, and you go and you insist on answers from your doctor. There'll be many moments which get us there. but Or the day that women from all sorts of cultural backgrounds feel that they can not only say to their religious leaders or their dads, I'm on my period right now, and guess what? I'm still coming to temple. Actually, Emma, can I have the story about the lead up to your wedding? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll say a part of it in the sense of, you know, we, I still like people to obviously have stuff to read in the book. But um, in yes. terms of the, high, the highlight of, of that, if you like, because I felt really um, conflicted about including this story in the book because... Being Jewish, and you know, it's got it's a good word, Jewish, because you can be Jewish, and I'm not particularly religious, so I always say I'm a bit Jewish. But I got married in a synagogue. My husband and I are both Jewish, and I love a lesson, love a lecture, love anything that you know tries to give you more information as a journalist. And we were offered these free sessions in the run up to our wedding, and I signed us up without saying to my then boyfriend, uh, "Do you want to go?" Uh, which he was not very pleased about. So we end up going to a session. Uh, there were four sessions about marriage and I thought it was going to be all about the day, the ceremony, love. It was quite a sweet, naive perhaps view I had. And a lot of those lessons, those sessions ended up being about menstruation and purity and religious purity laws because of course in the and this i should stress is the orthodox wing of judaism uh, and that's that's just the, the synagogue that we lived near and we were going to get married in uh, not getting too bogged down in that but i just wanted to stress that but the the laws of course what they're assuming is that women and men have never slept together if they are truly observant so they're trying to tell you everything and there are laws around purity which is that when you started menstruating you don't touch your husband you restrain from sexual activity and then at the end of your period I mean, there's there's more nuance to this, but if I could paraphrase it, you go to a ritual pool called a mikvah and you dunk yourself in it without any jewellery on, uh, completely naked, and you come out and it's a kind of rebirth thing and you're pure again. And after every period? After every period. Now, a lot of women have reclaimed this place. Some of them are really nice. They've become a bit like spas. I must also add men do go to the mikvah uh, after death or, again, it, with that kind of rebirth um element to it you know it's sort of a, a, cl a cleansing a literal cleanse for the soul uh and and you can reclaim it in in the sense of i'm sure you could spin it into a positive but i was appalled by how much focus there was on this and the idea of of any form of religious purity laws to me 
should have died in the Dark Ages. This is not something in 21st century developing world where we do have absorption methods, showers, uh, all sorts of ways of of, of of being clean physically, you know, because I can mm. understand back in the day having a period, you know, regardless of religion now, it was quite a scary thing for women and men because women would just free bleed because they had no choice. And you just see women bleeding. Uh, it wouldn't be as, as regular, depending on how far you go back, as once a month because diets have changed and all of that. But but the idea that women are still getting the memo from the major faiths, especially the major Abrahamic faiths in the world over, that they are somehow unclean or dirty and should be effectively sectioned off from those that they love because they're doing something natural that they have no control over is just wrong. And it was the focus within these lessons that I found it was disproportionate. I mean, fair enough, you may mention it, but this was the repeated theme. And I I just found it really um, discombobulating and not, not at all how I thought these lessons would be. And I then went on forums and I saw that some very orthodox young Jewish women, not named, had said how it had made them feel less than, made them feel othered and dirty. And I thought, do you know what? There's a really serious point here. And actually, if I'm going to look at the roots of the taboos, religion has to be scrutinised. And then I looked at Islam. There's some very similar principles at play. Catholicism, you look around the world. Buddhism, also I remember in Hong Kong seeing a temple that banned women uh, in India, there's a, a very famous temple that's only recently allowed women to come in because they banned women not just when they were menstruating, but they banned menstrual age women, right? And the first women who go back in there, the videos are online on the BBC and they are astonishing because they are literally being attacked for going to temple because they're of menstruating age. So this is a, this is, you know, a really difficult area. And the reason I was reticent about it is anti-Semites need no help. They don't need any extra grist to their mill. But it isn't just a Jewish thing. It's across all the religions. But of course, you know, I need to show you mine so you can show me yours kind of thing. And but it also goes back much further than some religions, Emma, in the sense that you mentioned Pliny the Elder in in AD 60. Yeah. Who had a bit of a thing about dirty women. Dirty women, turning wine off, you know, all sorts of things to do with our sanity. I mean, but in the 1850s in the UK, uh, in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, two doctors wrote about women turning meat bad when they were menstruating. Therefore, they shouldn't be in the health profession. I mean, there's still this conversation we're having is is in very privileged circumstance because we live in the developed world. In the developing world, uh, you've got all sorts of scenarios where women are still absolutely uh, exiled from their communities once a month. They are in Madagascar. They believe women turn mayonnaise bad. When they're menstruating in Nepal, they get put into these separate huts, which look incredibly upsetting, and no one should ever be exiled for doing something naturally. And I, I just think, for lots of from lots of forces, whether it was self-styled leading philosophers like Pliny, and I say self-styled because I can't actually now respect anything else Pliny has to say, having read his views <laughs> yes. on menstruating women, uh, through to you know, doctors in the 1850s in Britain, you know, there are many forces at work that have othered women, made women seem like they are not quite the same as men in the sense of equality because we menstruate. Now, I'm sorry, these are the same people who rely on women to provide them heirs, children, descendants, families, whatever you want to call them. And we have to be able 
to do that through some semblance of a healthy menstrual cycle. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Now, Emma, what, one of the most interesting lines in the book, I thought, was, uh, I think you were quoting a friend of yours or someone who said this to you, about marketing periods. And that was once religion and culture which inculcated the shame, and now it's capitalism. Yes. I mean, that's the really sad thing is, when you, when you look into the history of anything, you really do hope that it was just the stuff from, the, from previous centuries gone by where it began and was inculcated and it's just got deep roots, the taboo. What's really disappointing is to look at how in the 20th century, the 21st century, when we got uh, mass market absorption technology, if I could barely call it that, I mean, tampons haven't really moved on, have they, from First World War nurses rolling up bandages to put, uh, in their pants, which was the innovative stuff they did when they were out in the field bandaging men up and realising, hang on a minute, this could be very help- helpful when I'm menstruating. But anyway, the point is it's very disappointing to see that cutting-edge technology and cutting-edge brands have, have kept going with calling their brands and calling periods uh, secrets, you know, literally. So some brands are called shh. Some brands are called secret. When you see some of the brands marketed of tampons and sanitary towels, they they always use the word discreet. Uh, You've got the female hygiene aisles in supermarkets. Well, sorry, we're not unhygienic if we don't (laughs) bleed. I mean, this whole concept of us being dirty is has been reinforced. And yes, the period brands can hit back perhaps now and say, "Oh, we we've got really feminist." adverts well hang on a minute the liquid's still blue if they still use it and it ain't blue and i would also talk about the fact that some of the period adverts right now are like so far removed from tampons and sanitary tubs you've got a girl running through the field like throwing a javelin (laughs) or doing a bit of hockey well there's no tampon inside there's no blood inside and let me tell you the last thing most women feel like doing when they're on their period is playing a bit of hockey in some tight outfit now, I know I've got a period disease called endometriosis, so I'm particularly aggrieved at my time of the month. But sorry, this whole concept of like women in keep fit gear or wearing white or eating yogurt when having a period is obviously not how we look. I'm wearing trousers that have lost their elastic and I'm eating chippy chips doused in vinegar and I am watching Netflix back to back. Like that's more the advert I want to see. The endometriosis, Emma, is a very serious issue because it's that's that's as you point out in the book, um, is as common as type two diabetes, uh, yes. but is a shocking condition, and yet, as far as I know, really hasn't been openly talked about. I mean, we've had people on this podcast talking about it, but a lot of people don't know this exists and can't even pronounce it. But you've suffered very badly from it. I know. And I am totally happy to admit that the biggest amount of shame that I've had to do with my period is how long it took me to be diagnosed with a condition that is very serious. Endometriosis is where cells that that, uh, are like the womb lining don't leave your body like they should. They build up uh, on different parts of your organs, can lead to your organs sticking together. They, at the worst case, in, in, in some cases, if you view it like this, but of course most would, they take away your opportunity to have children should you wish to, because these cells make their ways into your fallopian tubes, your ovaries, all of that. But, but if you like, the first signs of it across anyone who has it is 
mainly, not everybody's the same, but really the, the sort of one continuum is extreme pain on your period. Now, listen, it's hard to explain pain. We're probably quite bad at explaining it, but I didn't get a diagnosis for 21 years. The average amount of time for diagnosis is seven years. So I, I'd been fobbed off basically by doctors for a long time because I did go and see them repeatedly. I, I really wasn't well in my teen years. I was bleeding from the age of 10. And it was only when I started... I'd come off the pill, which I had been uh, recommended because of the pain and to manage it. And obviously, it's, 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 it's a great protection in terms of having sex. And my natural period started rearing their head when we wanted to try for a child. And what was really interesting to me is when we started trying for a child, most people feel hopeful. I actually felt awful about it because I'm convinced my mother had it and was never diagnosed. She only has one child. She begged for a hysterectomy and they never gave her one. She was in agony her whole period career, if, if you like. And I said to my husband, I've really not got a good feeling about this. He said, Emma, come on, we're just at the beginning. Well, two and a half years later, when you both told nothing's wrong with you and we still can't get pregnant, of course, lots of people do have, unfortunately, unexplained infertility. But I was convinced something was wrong with me because I collapsed during one of my last periods before diagnosis. I couldn't walk another step forward. And that's not normal. And you are conducting a full, <laughs> relentless working life in the public eye at this stage, Emma. I, I, I'm, I'm astonished you could, you could do this. But you're also, as you say in the book, also sleepwalking into full infertility without knowing it. Um, yeah. And all because we're unable to talk about this thing. Yeah, I mean, what I'd realised was, here I was feeling very comfortable to talk about my period you know saying to people I've, I'm on my period or whatever it was on telly or just to friends but at the same time I had just meekly accepted what doctors had said to me which was go off with this pack of strong painkillers or paracetamol and you're just unlucky love you know that's the that's your lot and I actually think most people do know when something is wrong and that's why I had that sense of doom if you like when we started trying I felt something was broken in my body but I didn't know how to explain it. And it was only when a friend who happens to be an obstetrician and I were having breakfast out one morning and she'd been so kind to me generally as a friend, but also she knew that I did struggle. But I don't think she'd even known how badly I'd struggled. And she'd known me for 10 years. And she said, Emma, why are you leaning to one side? I said, oh, it's my period. She said, yeah, sit up. I said, I can't. I never sit up when I'm having a period. She said, what do you mean you can't sit up? I said, the pain's too great if I sit at that angle. And she said, I think you've got something called endometriosis. And I, you know, I present a programme called Woman's Hour. I'd never even properly heard of it. I couldn't spell it. I couldn't pronounce it. I didn't know what it was. But I went home, I Googled it, and it was like all my worst nightmares confirmed. Is, I felt this, sick. This is quite recent, Emma. We're not talking 25 years ago. No, three years ago. Yes. Yeah. And I felt really stupid. I felt, I did that thing that we always do, blame ourselves. Yeah. And then I thought, Oh my gosh, I've just read the last bullet point of side effects of this, infertility. And I thought, right, I might actually not be able to have a child. And that was terrifying, you know, absolutely terrifying. And I mean, just in terms to say, I am one of the, the extremely lucky ones, because when I did then get diagnosed, you can only be diagnosed, by the way, through an operation. It's quite a rare disease in that way because most times for a disease you can take a blood test or you know do a saliva test this is quite extreme you have to be opened through keyhole surgery and what's interesting about it as well if, if I could term it that way is you can get diagnosed 
and treated at the same time if you wish to and if your surgeon's uh, able to do that, which means they can laser off the endometrium that's stuck to all your organs. And where I would say my biggest chunk of luck came in is, number one, it hadn't gone into my uh, fertility organs. It was all over my bowel, which would explain why I thought I had IBS or Crohn's disease for the previous three years and for most of my life, to be honest. And I was also very lucky because I then went to a doctor after another six months of trying after that condition where they were confident they'd got it all out. My periods were still awful, which was a very annoying and frustrating side effect because sometimes they can be better after that operation. And I was very lucky to go to an NHS doctor who said, well, you stop being so stubborn and have IVF. And then the big piece of luck came in because it worked. And Emma, I think we should remind people that it all comes back to the fact that you felt unable to talk about your periods or to go have it properly investigated. And another thing you mentioned is that if people who had been genuinely concerned to innovate around periods, we'd be in a post-pain era at this stage. Um, one of the things that, that, that I think, Emma, applies to my generation, which is an older one than yours, is how women fear uh, their periods being weaponized in the workplace. Yes. I think this is this is apart from the shame. They don't want to confess that they have these, let's call them vulnerable days every month, where they're a bit hormonal maybe, and where they do experience real pain and might want to lie down for an hour here and there. And you deal with the whole issue of menstrual leave in the book. Um, do you want to tell me whether you believe in it or not? You do say it in the book, but I, it was it was a bit of a surprise to me in the end. I, I have to say, on, on balance, I come down on the side of not believing we need a specific policy called menstrual leave because of exactly what you say. It will be weaponised. And I also believe we have more than enough leave policies in place to cover should a woman need to perhaps work flexibly that day, take an hour out, as you say, perhaps work an hour longer, maybe schedule her diary differently, depending on what the job is. Uh, and I think there are greater accommodations workplaces can and should make and should be willing to say are available to women. But I don't think we need a specific policy. We have seen in Southeast Asia where policies are offered along these lines that they are popular in the sense of being they're offered by the bosses. They are unpopular in terms of uptake because of exactly what you've described. And it's a very tricky balance. But what I would say is recently when I was doing a talk on the book, I saw that Rosie Boycott was on the front row. And for people who don't know Rosie's work, she's a leading feminist, amongst many other things. She's now a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. And she also created the magazine, the feminist Bible, as it were, Spare Rib. And I was quite intimidated to talk to her afterwards because she's a woman who spent her life thinking about feminism and how to advance women's rights. And here I am trying to say, well, hang on a minute, why did you all forget about periods? And she said, we were too squeamish. We never once wrote an article about periods in any edition of Spare Rib. We wrote about abortion every issue, but we as feminists didn't want to talk about our periods. And I think that tells you a huge amount because feminists, I believe, deliberately omitted periods from women's experience and talked about experiences. And I get it that the, the wave of feminism that got us into the workplace did not wish to present women as other. Yes. did not wish to present women as weak, but we've moved on. We are in work now. We, we do struggle continually with how best to keep women in work after having a baby or during pregnancy. And I don't think that that is anywhere near perfect solution at all yet. 
but it's a lot better than it used to be. And my whole point is whether you're menopausal or uh, having a period or you are someone who has regular migraines, whatever your thing is, because you could, of course, have a period and be absolutely fine. You should be able to take your whole self to work. Now, I know this is difficult and I know I have a great deal of agency in my work. So you could say what a privileged platform you're saying this from. But I'm trying to say it to people who are actually responsible for workplaces as as much as anything, because I think what's interesting about the menopause is if you look at the police, they've taken on what they say are menopausal policies. And I think the menopause is actually doing better. It's not doing great, but doing better at being recognised perhaps by employers than periods because menopausal women are usually in their 50s slash 60s and they're usually at the apex of their power within an organisation. And that means if a a menopausal woman is going to tell you to open the window, you are not going to mess with her if she is someone who's really hot and pretty senior in your organisation. Whereas periods happen to you from a young age and you're usually relatively junior when trying to work your way up and you have a period if that makes sense so i think the seniority this isn't a perfect science here but the seniority of women who are menopausal has helped menopause get on the agenda whereas periods have been totally left behind now emma we're going to finish up uh, but I want you to tell me what is your battle cry. I, I, I want to emphasise to listeners that your book is actually great fun and it's, it's, it's full of wonderful stories that I, I wouldn't want to ruin it by telling some of them. Um, but it actually does keep you reading and it is great fun. But on a serious note to end up with, what would you say to young women out there about periods and about talking about them? I would say they are a part of us. You can, of course, choose to cancel them in the sense of take precautions in the sense of pills or whatever to stop yourself from having them. By the way, you can take the pill back to back safely now. When I first started taking the pill, that was never recommended. We mm. now know that's bogus information because of the Pope. And when the pill was, yes. Yeah, when the Pope was, uh, sorry, excuse me, when the pill was created in the 60s in a highly Catholic America women were told they were not allowed to run the pill back to back. Now, while that actually had more truth then in the sense of the medicine because the hormone doses were much higher and women needed a break, the actual guilt that I used to feel if I ever ran a pill back to back was a nonsense because the reason they invented this fake seven-day window for a fake bleed, because it's it's not a real period, it's a chemical one, was so that husbands, Catholic husbands, didn't know their women were taking birth control. So effectively to keep the Pope happy, who's never had a period because it's never been a woman. So I, I just want to say, whatever your period experience is, they are not something that make you dirty. They are not something that make you less than. And there is no weakness in being able to talk about the fact you may not feel great on your period or it may be in the run up to your period, whether that's with a loved one, a doctor, a religious leader or a boss, because women have had shame baked into them since the beginning of time about their bodies and only because our periods come from our vaginas which we always link to sex i think of periods remain taboo and dirty things in our pants actually they need the healthy disinfectant of sunlight people need to have what i term period pride because pride is the opposite of shame and i'm not saying you have to go and talk about it all the time but i want periods to become utterly unremarkable so that you can talk about them when you need to Emma Barnett, it was a great pleasure to talk to you and I highly recommend the book and keep up the good work in all other areas of your life. (laughs) And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest, 
Emma Barnett, the Rottweiler. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 